The following is a conversation with Richard Karp, a professor at Berkeley and one of the most important figures in the history of theoretical computer science. In 1985, he received the Turing Award for his research in the theory of algorithms, including the development of the Admirals Karp algorithm for solving the max flow problem on networks, Hopcroft Karp algorithm for finding maximum cardinality matchings in bipartite graphs, and his landmark paper in complexity theory called Reducibility Among Combinatorial Problems, in which he proved 21 problems to be NP-complete. This paper was probably the most important catalyst in the explosion of interest in the study of NP-completeness and the P versus NP problem in general. Quick summary of the ads. Two sponsors, 8 Sleep Mattress and Cash App. Please consider supporting this podcast by going to acesleep.com slash lex and downloading Cash App and using code LEXPODCAST. Click the links, buy the stuff. It really is the best way to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation. This show is sponsored by 8sleep and it's Pod Pro mattress that you can check out at 8sleep.com slash Lex to get $200 off. It controls temperature with an app. It can cool down to as low as 55 degrees on each side of the bed separately. Research shows that temperature has a big impact on the quality of our sleep. Anecdotally, it's been a game changer for me. I love it. It's been a couple of weeks now. I've just been really enjoying it both in the fact that I'm getting better sleep and that it's a smart mattress, essentially. I kind of imagine this being the early days of artificial intelligence being a part of every aspect of our lives and certainly infusing AI in one of the most important aspects of life, which is sleep, I think has a lot of potential for being beneficial. The Pod Pro is packed with sensors that track heart rate, heart rate variability, and respiratory rate, showing it all in their app. The app's health metrics are amazing, but the cooling alone is honestly worth the money. I don't always sleep, but when I do, I choose the 8sleep Pod Pro mattress. Check it out at 8sleep.com slash Lex to get $200 off. And remember, just visiting the site and considering the purchase helps convince the folks at 8sleep that this silly old podcast is worth sponsoring in the future. This show is also presented by the great and powerful Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code LEXPODCAST. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. It's one of the best designed interfaces of an app that I've ever used. To me, good design is when everything is easy and natural. Bad design is when the app gets in the way, either because it's buggy or because it tries too hard to be helpful. I'm looking at you, Clippy, from Microsoft, even though I love you. Anyway, there's a big part of my brain and heart that loves to design things and also to appreciate great design by others. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store or Google Play and use the code LEXPODCAST, you get $10. And Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Richard Carp.
wrote that at the age of 13, you were first exposed to plain geometry and was wonderstruck by the power and elegance of formal proofs. Are there problems, proofs, properties, ideas in plain geometry that uh, from that time that you remember uh, being mesmerized by or just enjoying to go through to prove various aspects? So Michael Rabin told me this story about an experience he had when he was a young student who was ex tossed out of his classroom for bad behavior and was wandering through the corridors of his school and came upon two older students who were studying the problem of finding the shortest distance between two non-overlapping circles. And Michael thought about it and said, um, you take the straight line between the two centers and the segment between the two circles is the shortest because a straight line is the shortest distance between the two centers and any other line connecting the circles would be uh, on, a, on a longer line. And I thought, and he thought, and I agreed that this was just elegant, the pure reasoning could come up with such a result. Certainly the, the shortest distance from the two centers of the circles is a straight line. Uh, could you once again say what's the next step in that proof? Well, any any segment joining the the, the two circles, uh, if you extend it by taking the radius on each side, you get a segment with uh, a path with three edges, which connects the two centers, and this has to be at least as long as the shortest path, which is the straight line. The straight line, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is that's quite quite simple. So what what is it about that elegance that you just find uh, compelling? Well, just that you could establish a uh, a fact about geometry beyond dispute by pure reasoning. Um, I, I also enjoyed the challenge of solving puzzles in plane geometry. It was much more fun than the earlier mathematics courses, which were mostly about arithmetic operations and manipulating them. Was, was there something about geometry itself, the slightly visual component of it that you oh, can visualize? Oh, yes, absolutely, although I lacked three-dimensional vision. I wasn't very good at three-dimensional vision. You mean being able to visualize three-dimensional objects? Three-dimensional objects or, or um, uh, surfaces, hyperplanes, and so on. Um, so so there, uh, there I didn't have an intuition. But, um, for example, the fact that the sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees uh, is, is proved convincingly. Um, and it comes as a surprise that that can be done. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why is that surprising? The the well, well, it is a surprising uh, is a surprising idea, I suppose. Uh, why is that proved difficult? It's not. That's the point. It's so easy, and yet it's so convincing. Do you remember what is the proof that it um, uh, yeah, up, adds up to one eighty? Uh, you you uh, start at a corner and draw a line um, 
parallel to the opposite side. And that line sort of trisects the angle between the other two sides. And uh, you, you, you get a, uh, a half plane which has to add up to 180 degrees. And it consists, and the angles by, by the equality of uh, alternate angles, what's it called? Um, you, you, you get a correspondence between the angles created by the si along the side of the triangle and the three angles of the triangle. Has geometry had an impact on, when you look into the future of your work with combinatorial algorithms, has it had some kind of impact in terms of, yeah, being able to, the puzzles, the visual aspects that were first so compelling to you? Not Euclidean geometry, particularly. I think uh, uh, I use tools like uh, linear programming and integer programming a lot, and uh, but uh, those require high-dimensional visualization, and so I tend to go by the algebraic properties. Um, right, the you you go by the algebra, the linear algebra, and not by the the visualization. Well, the interpretation in terms of, for example, finding the highest point on a polyhedron, mm -hmm. as in uh, linear programming, uh, is is motivating. Um, but again, it, it I, I don't have the high dimensional intuition that would particularly inform me. So I sort of deep lean on the algebra. So to linger on that point, what kind of visualization do you like, do you do when you're trying to think about, we'll get to combinatorial algorithms, but just algorithms in general. Yeah. What kind of, what, what's inside your mind when you're thinking about designing algorithms? Or, or even just tackling any, any mathematical problem? Well, I think that usually an algorithm is uh, involves a uh, repetition of some inner loop, <laughs> and and so I can sort of visualize the um, the distance from the desired solution as iteratively reducing until you finally hit the exact solution. And try to take steps that get you closer to the. Try to, to get the... take steps that get closer, and having the certainty of converging so it's it's very, it's basically the the mechanics of the algorithm is often very simple um, but especially when you're trying something out on the computer so for example um, uh, I did some work on the traveling salesman problem and uh, I could see there was a particular function that had to be minimized and it was fascinating to see the successive approaches to the minimum to the optimum you mean, so first of all, a traveling salesman problem is where you have to visit uh, every city without ever, the only once. Yeah, that's right. Find the shortest path the through shortest path. cities. The, yeah, uh, which is sort of a canonical, a standard, a really nice problem that's really hard. In right, that's exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, so can you say again, what was nice about the objective, being able to think about the objective function there and maximizing it or minimizing it? Well, it's just that that the um, as the algorithm proceeded, it was you were mm -hmm. making progress, continual progress, and 
and eventually getting to the optimum point. So there's two two parts, maybe. Maybe you can correct me. But first is like getting an intuition about what the solution would look like. And or even maybe coming up with a solution. And two is proving that this thing is actually going to be pretty good. Uh, what part is harder for you? Where's the magic happen? Is it in the first sets of intuitions or is it in the detail, the messy details of actually showing that it is going to get to the exact solution and it's gonna run at this at, at a certain complexity? Well, the, the the magic is just the fact that it the, that the gap from the optimum decreases monotonically, and you can see it happening. And um, various metrics of what's going on are improving all, all along until finally you hit the optimum. Perhaps later we'll talk about the assignment problem, and I can <laughs> illustrate illustrate a little better. Yeah. Now, zooming out again, as you write, Don Knuth has called attention to a breed of people who uh, derive great aesthetic pleasure from contemplating the structure of computational processes. So Don calls these folks geeks. Mm -hmm. And you write that you remember the moment you realized you were such a person, you were shown the Hungarian algorithm to solve the assignment problem. Right. So perhaps you can explain what the assignment problem is and what... Uh, the Hungarian algorithm is. So in the assignment problem, you have uh, N boys and N girls, and you are given the desirability of, uh, or, or the cost of matching the ith boy with the jth girl for all I and J. You're given a matrix of numbers, and you want to find the one-to-one -one matching of the boys with the girls such that the sum of the associated costs will be minimized. So the, the, the best way to match the boys with the girls or men with jobs or any two sets. Um, now, any possible matching is possible? or is uh, Yeah, all one-to-one -one correspondences are permiss permissible. If there is a connection that is not allowed, then you can think of it as having an infinite cost. I see, yeah. Right. So um, what you do is uh, to depend on the observation that the identity of the optimal assignment, or as we call it, the optimal permutation, um, is not changed if you subtract um, a constant from any row or column of the matrix. You can see that the comparison between the different assignments is not changed by that. Um, because your penal, if you decrease a particular row, all the elements of a row by some constant, all solutions decrease by the cost of that, by an, an amount equal to that constant. So the idea of the algorithm is to start with a matrix of non-negative numbers and keep subtracting from rows or from or, or entire columns um, in, in such a way that you subtract the same constant from all the elements of that row or column uh, while maintaining the property 
that um, uh, all the elements are non-negative. Simple. Yeah, and so and so, um, what you have to do is uh, is find small moves which will decrease the total cost um, while uh, subtracting constants from rows or columns. And there's a particular way of doing that by computing a kind of shortest path through the elements in the matrix. Uh, and you just keep going in this way um, until you finally get a, a full permutation of zeros while the matrix is non-negative, and then you know that that has to be the cheapest. Is that as um, simple as it sounds? So the the well, shortest path of the matrix part. Yeah, the simplicity lies in how you find the what you, I oversimplified slightly. What you 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 will end up uh, subtracting a constant from some rows or columns and adding the same constant back to other rows and columns, uh, so as not to. Uh, not to reduce any of the zero elements, you leave them unchanged. Um, but um, uh, each individual step modifies a, 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 a several rows and columns by the same amount, but overall decreases the cost. So there's something about that elegance that made you go, aha, this is a beautiful, like it's, it's, uh, it's amazing that something like this Something so simple can solve a problem like this. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. If I had mechanical ability, I would probably like to do woodworking or other activities where you sort of shape something uh, in, in, into something beautiful and orderly. And there's something about the orderly, systematic nature of uh, that iterative algorithm that is pleasing to me. So what do you think about this idea of geeks, as Don Knuth calls them? What do you think of, is it something uh, specific to a mindset that allows you to discover the elegance in computational processes, or is this all of us, can all of us discover this beauty? Or were you born this way? <laughs> I think so. I always like to play with numbers. I, I, uh... I used to uh, amuse myself by multiplying four-digit decimal numbers in my head and um, putting myself to sleep by starting with one and doubling the number as long as I could go and uh, testing my memory, my ability to retain the information. And I also and, read somewhere that you uh, you wrote that you enjoyed uh, showing off to your friends by, I believe, multiplying four-digit numbers uh, right, a couple of four-digit numbers. Yeah, I had a a summer job at a beach resort outside of Boston, and uh, the other employee, I, I was the barker at a skee ball game. Yeah, I used to, I used to sit at a microphone, microphone saying, "Come one, come all, come in and play skee ball. Five cents to play, a nickel to win, and so on." <laughs> That's what a Barker, I was gonna, I wasn't sure if I should know, but Barker, that's, so you're the the charming, outgoing person that's getting people to uh, come in. Yeah, well, I wasn't particularly charming, but I could be very repetitious and loud. <laughs> and um, the other employees were uh, 
sort of ju juvenile delinquents who had no <laughs> academic bent, but somehow I found that I could impress them by uh, by uh, performing this mental 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 arithmetic. Yeah, there's something to that. There, you know, one of some of the most popular videos on the internet is. Uh, there's a, there's a YouTube channel called Numberphile that shows off different mathematical ideas. I see. There, there's still something really profoundly interesting to people about math, mm -hmm. the the beauty of it. Something, even if they don't understand uh, the basic concept even being discussed, there's something compelling to it. W what do you think that is? Any lessons you drew from the your early teen years when you were showing off <laughs> to your friends <laughs> with the numbers? Like, is uh, what is it that attracts us to the beauty of mathematics? Do you think the general population, not just uh, the computer scientists and math mathematicians? I think that it you know you can do amazing things. You can test whether large numbers are prime. You can uh, um, you can solve little puzzles about ca cannibals and missionaries. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, there's a kind of achievement. It's 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 puzzle solving, and at a higher level, the fact that you can you can do this reasoning that you can prove in an absolutely ironclad way that the sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. Yeah, it's it's a nice escape from the messiness of the real world where nothing can be proved. So, and we'll talk about it. But sometimes the ability to map the real world into such problems where you can't prove it is is a is a powerful step. Yeah, and it's amazing cool. that we can do. Of course, it. another attribute of geeks is they they're not necessarily uh, endowed with emotional intelligence, and so they can live in a world of abstractions without having to uh, master the complexities of uh, dealing with people. So just to link on the historical note, as a PhD student in 1955, you joined the computational lab at Harvard where Howard Aiken had built the Mark I and the Mark IV computers. Just to take a step back into that history, what were those computers like? Uh, the Mark IV filled a, a large room, much, big, much bigger than this large office that we were wow. talking in now. And you could walk around inside it. There were there were uh, rows of relays. You could just walk around the interior, and uh, the the machine would sometimes fail uh, because of bugs, which literally meant flying creatures landing on the switches. Um, so I never I never used that machine for any practical purpose. Um, we the lab eventually acquired a uh, one of one of the earlier um, commercial computers. This is already in the sixties. No, in the mid fifties. In the mid fifties or mid late fifties. There was already commercial computers in the. Yeah, we had a Univac, a two thousand Univac with two thousand words of storage. Wow. And so you had to work hard to allocate the, the memory properly to. Also, the uh, excess time from one word to another depended on the number of you know, the particular words, and so you, uh, there was an art to sort of arranging the storage allocation to uh, make uh, fetching data rapid. 
were, were you attracted to this actual physical world implementation of mathematics? So it's a mathematical machine that's actually doing the math physically. No, not, not at all. I think <laughs> I was a, I was attracted to the underlying algorithms. So, but did you draw any inspiration? So, could you have imagined, like, what did you imagine was the future of these giant computers? Could you have imagined that sixty years later would have billions of these computers all over the world? I couldn't imagine that, but there was a sense in the laboratory that this was the wave of the future. In fact, my mother influenced me. She she told me that data processing was going to be really big and I should get into it. <laughs> She's a smart woman. <laughs> yeah, she was a, sm a smart woman. And there was just a feeling that this was going to change the world. But I, I, I didn't think of it in terms of personal computing. I had no... That, I had no anticipation that we would be walking around with computers in our pockets or anything like that. Did you see computers as tools, as mathematical mechanisms to analyze sort of through theoretical computer science or as the AI folks, which is an entire other community of dreamers, yeah. uh, as something that could one day have human level intelligence? Well, AI wasn't very much on my radar. I did read uh, Turing's paper about the uh, the uh, the um, the Turing test, computing the, and the intelligence. Yeah, the Turing test. Um, what did you think about that paper? Was that just like science fiction? Um, I thought that it wasn't a very good test because it was too subjective. So I, I didn't feel that I didn't feel that the Turing test was really the right way to calibrate how intelligent uh, an algorithm could be. But to linger on that, do you think it's pot, because you've come up with some incredible tests later on, tests on algorithms, right? Yeah. That are uh, like strong, reliable, robust across a bunch of different classes of algorithms. But returning to this emotional mess that is intelligence, yeah. do you think it's possible to come up with a test that's, as ironclad as some of the computational complexity work? Well, I think the greater question is whether it's possible to achieve human level, level intelligence. Right, so that's, so first of all, let me, at the philosophical level, do you think it's possible to create algorithms that reason and would seem to us to have the same kind of intelligence as human beings? It's an open question. Um, it seems to me that um, most of the achievements have uh, acquire, uh, operate within a very limited set of ground rules and for a very limited precise task, which is a quite different situation from the processes that go on in the minds of humans, which where they have to sort of function in changing environments. They have emotions. They have um, um, physical attributes for, acquire, for exploring their environment. Um, they have intuition. They have desires, um, emotions. And 
I don't see anything in the current achievements of what's called AI that come close to that capability. I don't think there's any computer program which surpasses a six-month-old child in terms of comprehension of the world. Do you think this complexity of human intelligence, all the cognitive abilities we have, all the emotion, do you think that could be reduced one day or just fundamentally, can it be reduced to an al a set of algorithms or an algorithm? So can a Turing machine <laughs> achieve human level intelligence? I am doubtful about that. I guess the argument in favor of it is that the human brain seems to achieve what we call intelligence, cognitive abilities of different kinds. And if you buy the premise that the human brain is just a, an enormous interconnected set of switches, so to speak, then in principle you should be able to diagnose what that interconnection structure is like, characterize the individual switches, and build a, a simulation outside. But while that may be true in principle, that cannot be the way we're eventually going to tackle this problem. It's, you know, <laughs> enormous. That, that does not seem like a feasible way to go about it. So it, there is, however, an existence proof that um, uh, if you believe that the brain is, is just a network of, of neurons operating by rules, I guess you could say that that's an existence proof of the ability to build the capabilities of a mechanism, um, but it would be almost impossible to acquire the information unless we got enough insight into the operation of the brain. But there's so much mystery there. Do you think, well, what do you make of consciousness, for example? There's something, as an example of something we completely have no clue about, the fact that we have this subjective experience. Right. Is it possible that this network of, uh, this circuit of switches is able to create something like consciousness? To know, to know its own identity. Yeah, to know, to know the algorithm, to know itself. <laughs> to know itself. I think if you try to define that rigorously, you'd have a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know that there are um, many who um, believe that general intelligence can be achieved, and there are even some who are feel certain that uh, uh, the singularity will come and uh, we will be surpassed by the machines, which will then learn more and more about themselves and reduce humans to an inferior breed. I am doubtful that this will ever be achieved. Just for the fun of it, <laughs> could you linger on why, what's your intuition, why you're doubtful? So there are quite a few people that are extremely worried yeah. about this uh, existential threat of artificial intelligence, of us being left behind by the superintelligent new species. What's your intuition why that's not quite likely? Just because none of the achievements in speech or robotics or uh, 
natural language processing or creation of flexible computer assistants or any of that comes anywhere near close to that level of cognition. What do you think about ideas of sort of, uh, if we look at Moore's law and exponential improvement uh, to allow us that would surprise us? Sort of our intuition fall apart with, with exponential improvement because, I mean, we're not able to kind of, we kind of think in linear improvement. Yeah. We're not able to imagine a world that goes from the Mark I computer to a, an iPhone ten. Yeah. So do you think it would be, we could be really surprised by the exponential growth? Or, or on the flip side, is, is it possible that also intelligence is actually way, 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 way harder? Uh, even with exponential improvement, um, to be able to crack? I don't think any constant factor improvement could <laughs> could change things. I mean, given, given our current comprehension of how the, of, of, of what cognition requires, it seems to me that multiplying the speed of the switches by a factor of a thousand or a million uh, will not be useful until we really understand the organizational principle behind the, the network of switches. Well, let's jump into the network of switches and talk about combinatorial algorithms if we could. Let's step back with the very basics. What are combinatorial algorithms? And what are some major examples of problems they aim to solve? A combinatorial algorithm is... Uh, is one which deals with a um, a system of discrete objects that can uh, occupy various states or take on various values from a discrete set of values um, and need to be arranged or or um, uh, or selected um, in such a way as to uh, achieve some to minimize some cost function, or to prove or to s- prove the existence of some combinatorial configuration. So, an example would be um, coloring the vertices of a graph. What's a graph? <laughs> <laughs> Let's step back. So, what? Uh, and it's fun to uh, to ask one of the greatest computer scientists of all time the most basic questions in the beginning of most books, but. For people who might not know, but in general, how you think about it, what is what is a graph? Uh, a graph that's that's simple. It's a set of points, certain pairs of which are joined by lines called edges, and they sort of represent the in different applications represent the interconnections between uh, discrete objects. So they could be the interactions interconnections between switches in a digital circuit or interconnections indicating the communication patterns of a human community. Um, and they could be directed or undirected. And then, as you've mentioned before, might have costs. Right, on, they uh, can be directed or undirected. They, they can be, you can think of them as, uh, if, you're, if, if you think, if a graph were representing a communication network, then the edge could be undirected, meaning that information could flow along it in both directions, or it could be directed with only one-way communication. 
A road system is another example of a graph with weights on the edges. And then a lot of problems of uh, optimizing the efficiency of such networks or learning about the performance of such networks um, uh, are the the object of combinatorial algorithms. So it could be uh, scheduling classes at a school where... uh, the, uh, the the vertices, the nodes of the network, are the individual classes, and uh, the edges indicate the constraints, which say that certain classes cannot take place at the same time, or certain teachers are available only at certain for certain classes, etc. Or um, I talked earlier about the assignment problem of matching the boys with the girls. Um, uh, where um, you have a, there a graph with an edge from each boy to each girl uh, with a weight indicating the cost. Or um, in uh, logical design of computers, you might want to find a set of so-called gates, switches to the, that perform logical functions, which can be interconnected to realize some function. So you... You might ask, um, um, uh, how many gates do you need in order to um, um, for a, for a um, circuit to give uh, a yes output if at least a given number of its inputs are ones, and no if not, if fewer are, are present. My favorite is probably all the all the work with network flows. So anytime you have, uh, I don't know why it's so compelling, but there's something just beautiful about it. It seems like there's so many applications and communication networks mm-hmm. uh, in uh, traffic right. flow that you can map into these. And then you can think of pipes and water going through pipes and you can optimize it in different ways. There's something always visually and intellectually compelling to me about it. and of course, you've done work there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there, uh, the edges represent uh, channels along which some commodity can flow. It might be gas. It might be water. It might be information. Maybe supply chain as well, like products being products delivered. flowing from one operation to another. Yeah. And uh, the edges have a capacity, which is the rate at which the commodity can flow. And uh, a central problem is to determine, given a network of these channels, in this case, the edges are communication channels, um, the, uh, the challenge is to find the maximum rate at which the uh, information can flow along these channels to get from a source to a destination. And uh, that's, a, that's a fundamental combinatorial problem that I, I've worked on uh, jointly with um, the scientist Jack Edmonds. We, I think, were the first to give a formal proof that uh, this maximum flow problem through a network uh, can be solved in polynomial time. Which uh, I remember the first time I learned that, just learning that, in um, maybe even grad school. I don't think it was even undergrad. No, algorithm, yeah. Do network flows get taught in 
in um, basic algorithms courses? Yes, probably. Okay, so yeah, I've, I remember being very surprised that max flow is a polynomial time algorithm. Yeah. That there's a nice fast algorithm that solves max flow. But so there is an algorithm named after you and admins, the admin CARP algorithm for max flow. So w what was it like tackling that problem and trying to arrive at a polynomial time solution? And maybe you can describe the algorithm, maybe you can describe what's the running time complexity that you showed. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, what is a polynomial time algorithm? Yeah. Perhaps we could discuss that. So yeah, let's let's actually just even yeah, that's what is algorithmic uh, algorithmic complexity? What are the major classes of algorithm complexity? So we in the, in a problem like the assignment problem or um, scheduling schools or any of these applications, um, you have a set of input data, which might, for example, be. Um, um, uh, a set of vertices connected by edges with the you're given for each edge the capacity of the edge and um you have um algorithms which are uh, think of them as computer pr programs with operations such as addition subtraction multiplication division comparison of numbers and so on um and you're trying to construct an algorithm uh, based on those operations, which will determine in, in a minimum number of computational steps the answer to the problem. In this case, the computational step is one of those operations, and the answer to the problem is, let's say, the, um, the configuration of the network that carries the maximum amount of flow. And an algorithm is said to run in polynomial time if, as a function of the size of the input, the number of vertices, the number of edges, and so on, um, the number of basic computational steps grows only as some fixed power of that size. A linear algorithm would execute a number of steps linearly proportional to the size. Quadratic algorithm would be steps proportional to the square of the size, and so on. And algorithms that whose running time is bounded by some fixed power of the size are called polynomial algorithms. And, and that's supposed to be relatively fast class of algorithms. That's right. We theoreticians take that to be the definition of an algorithm being um, efficient, and uh, and we're interested in which problems can be solved by such efficient algorithms. One can argue whether that's the right definition of efficient, because you could have an algorithm whose running time is the 10,000th power of the size of the input, and that wouldn't be really efficient. But in, And in practice, it's oftentimes reducing from an n-squared algorithm to an n log n or linear time is practically the jump that you want to make to allow a real-world system to solve a problem. Yeah, that's so, also true because, especially as we get very large networks, the size can be in the millions, and uh, and then uh, anything above uh, n log n, where n is the size, would be uh, too much 
for uh, practical solution. Okay, so that's polynomial time algorithms. What other classes of algorithms are there? What's so that usually they they designate polynomials as the letter P. Yeah. There's also NP, NP complete, and NP hard. Yeah. So can you try to disentangle those and by trying to define them simply? Right. So a polynomial time algorithm is one which whose running time is bounded by a polynomial in the size of the input. Uh, there's the, then there's that, the class of such algorithms is called P. In the worst case, by the way, we should say, right? Yeah, so for and, every and, yes, case of the right. problem. And that's very important that in this theory, um, when we measure the complexity of an algorithm, we really measure the number of step, the growth of the number of steps in the worst case. So you may have an algorithm that um, runs very rapidly in most cases, but if there's any case where it gets into a very long computation, that would increase the computational complexity by this measure. And that's a very important issue because there, are, uh, as we may discuss later, there are some very important algorithms which don't have a good standing from the point of view of their worst case performance and yet are very effective. So, so uh, theoreticians are interested in P, the class of problems solvable in polynomial time. Then there's um, uh, NP, which is the class of problems which may be hard to solve, but where the where where when confronted with a solution, you can check it in polynomial time. Let me give you an example there. So if we look at the assignment problem, uh, so you have uh, n boys, you have n girls, you have the number of numbers that you need to write down to specify the problem instances n squared. And the question is, um, how many steps are needed to solve it? And um, Jack Edmonds and I were the first to show that it could be done in time n cubed. Uh, earlier algorithms required n to the fourth. So as a polynomial function of the size of the input, this is a fast algorithm. Now, to illustrate the class NP, the question is, how long would it take to um, verify that a solution is optimal? So, for example, if, um, if the input was a graph, we might want to um, find the largest clique in the graph. Or a clique is a set of vertices such that any vertex, each vertex in the set is adjacent to each of the others. So the uh, clique is a complete subgraph. Yeah, so if it's a Facebook social network, everybody's friends with everybody else. It's a close clique of friends. Oh, that would be what's called a complete graph. It would be... No, I mean, yeah. uh, within that clique. Uh, within that clique, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're all friends. So a complete graph is when... Everybody uh, is friendly. As everybody is friends with everybody, yeah. Yeah. So the problem might be to uh, determine whether in a given graph there exists a clique of a certain size. Now, that turns out to be a very hard problem. 
but how but if somebody hands you a clique and asks you to check whether it is a, a, a hands you a set of vertices and asks you to check whether it's a clique um you could do that simply by exhaustively looking at all of the edges between the vertices and the clique and verifying that they're all there. And that's a polynomial time algorithm. And that's a polynomial. <laughs> so the verify there the problem of finding the clique appears to be extremely hard, but the problem of verifying a clique uh, to see if it reaches a target number of vertices. Um is easy to solve, is easy to verify. So finding the clique is hard. Checking it is easy. Problems of that nature are called non-deterministic polynomial time algorithms, and that's the class NP. And what about NP complete and NP hard? Okay, let's talk about problems where you're getting a yes no a yes or no answer rather than a numerical value. So either there is a a perfect matching of the of the uh, boys with the girls, or there is, there isn't. It's clear that um, every problem in P is also in NP. If you can solve the problem exactly, then you can certainly verify the solution. On the other hand, there are problems in the class NP. This is the class of problems that are easy to check although they may be hard to solve. It's not at all clear that problems in NP lie in P. So, for example, if we're looking at scheduling classes at a school, the fact that you can verify when handed a schedule for the school, whether it meets all the requirements, that doesn't mean that you can find the schedule rapidly. So intuitively, NP, non-deterministic polynomial, checking rather than finding, um, is going to be harder than, uh, is going to include, uh, is, is easier. Checking is easier, and therefore the class of problems that can be checked appears to be much larger than the class of problems that can be solved. And then you keep adding appears to and uh, sort of these uh, additional words that designate that we don't know for sure yet. We right. don't know for sure. So the theoretical question, which is considered to be the most central problem in theoretical computer science, or at least computational complexity theory, combinatorial algorithm theory, the question is whether P is equal to NP. If P were equal to NP, it would be amazing. It would mean that um, every problem where a solution can be rapidly checked can actually be solved in polynomial time. We don't really believe that's true. If you're scheduling classes at a school, it's, uh, we expect that if somebody hands you a satisfying schedule, you can verify that it works. That doesn't mean that you should be able to find such a schedule. So intuitively, NP encompasses a lot more problems than P. So can uh, we take a small tangent and break apart that intuition? So do you, first of all, think that the biggest sort of open problem in computer science, maybe mathematics, is whether P equals NP? Do you think P equals NP, or do you think P 
is not equal to NP. If you had to uh, bet all your money on it. <laughs> I, w- I would bet that P is unequal to NP, uh, simply because there are problems that have been around for centuries and have been studied intensively in mathematics, and even more so in the last 50 years since the P versus NP was stated. And uh, no polynomial time algorithms have been found for these easy-to-check problems. So one one example is a problem that goes back to the mathematician Gauss, who was interested in um, factoring large numbers. So uh, we know what a, a number is prime if it doesn't ha- if it cannot be written as the product of two or more numbers unequal to one. Uh, so if we can factor the, uh, a number like ninety one, it's seven times thirteen. Um, but uh, if I give you 20-digit or 30-digit numbers, you're probably going to be at a loss to have any idea whether they can be factored. Um, so the, pr- the problem of factoring very large numbers uh, is um, does not appear to have an efficient solution. But once you have found the factors... Uh, express the number as a product of two smaller numbers, you can quickly verify that they are factors of the number. And your intuition is a lot of people finding, you know, this. a lot of brilliant people have tried to find algorithms. For this one particular problem, there's many others like it that are really well studied and it would be great to find an efficient algorithm for. Right. And in fact, um, we have... Uh, some results that I was instrumental in obtaining following up on work by the mathematician Stephen Cook um, to show that uh, within the class NP of easy-to-check problems, there's a huge number that are equivalent in the sense that either all of them or none of them lie in P. And this happens only if P is equal to NP. So if P is unequal to NP, uh, we would also know that uh, uh, virtually all the standard combinatorial problems, if, if P is unequal to NP, none of them can be solved in polynomial time. Can you explain how that's possible to tie together so many problems in a nice bunch that if one is proven to be efficient, then all are? The first uh, and most important stage of progress was a result by uh, Stephen Cook, um, who showed that a certain problem called the satisfiability problem of propositional logic uh, is as hard as any problem in the class P. So the propositional logic problem is expressed in terms of... um, expressions involving the logical operations and or and not operating 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 on uh, variables that can be either true or false. So uh, an instance of the problem would be some formula involving and or and not. Um, and the question would be whether there is an assignment of truth values to the variables in the problem that would make the formula true. So, for example, if I take um, the formula 
uh, A or B and A or not B and not A or B and not A or not B, and take the conjunction of all four of those so-called expressions, you can determine that no assignment of truth values to the variables A and B um, will allow that conjunction of what are called clauses uh, to be true. So that's an example of a formula in um, propositional logic involving expressions uh, based on the operations and, or, and not. Um, that's an example of a problem which ha which is not satisfiable. There is no solution that satisfies all of those constraints. And that's like one of the cleanest and fundamental problems in computer science. It's right. like a nice statement of a really hard problem. It's a, it's a nice statement of a really hard problem. And, and what Cook showed is that um, every problem in NP is can be re-expressed as an instance of the satisfiability problem. So to do that, he uh, used the observation that a very simple abstract machine called the Turing machine um, can be used to describe any algorithm, uh, an algorithm for any realistic computer can be translated into uh, an equivalent algorithm on uh, one of these uh, Turing machines, which are extremely simple. So a Turing machine, there's a tape, and you can yeah, you, you have walk along that data tape. on a tape, and you have basic instructions, uh, a finite list of instructions, which say which, which say if you're reading a particular symbol on the tape, um, and you're in a particular state, then you can move to. Um, a different state and change the state of the number that you or the element that you were looking at, the cell of the tape that you were looking at. And that was like a metaphor and a mathematical construct that Turing put together to represent all possible computation. All possible computation. Now, one of these so-called Turing machines is too simple to be useful in practice, but for theoretical purposes, we can depend on the fact that an algorithm for any computer can be translated into one that would run on a Turing machine. Right. Uh, and then using that fact, um, he could sort of describe um, any possible non-deterministic polynomial time algorithm, any, pro any algorithm for a problem in NP could be expressed as a sequence of uh, moves of the Turing machine uh, described in terms of reading a symbol on the tape um, while you're in a given state and moving to a new state and leaving behind a new new symbol. And given that, uh, the fact that any non-deterministic polynomial time algorithm can be described by a list of such instructions, you could translate the problem into the language of the satisfiability problem. Is that amazing to you, by the way, if you take yourself back when you were first thinking about this space of problems? Is that, how amazing is that? It, it's astonishing. When you look at Cook's proof, it's not too difficult to sort of figure out why this is, why this is so, but the implications are staggering. 
it tells us that this, of all the problems in NP, all the problems where solutions are easy to check, uh, they can they can all be rewritten in terms of uh, the satisfiability problem. Yeah, it's uh, in a- adding so much more weight to the P equals NP question because all it takes is to show that one. That's right. One so, algorithm in this class. So the P versus NP can be re-expressed as, as simply asking whether the satisfiability problem of propositional logic is solvable in polynomial time. But there's more. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I encountered Cook's paper when he published it in a conference in 1971. Yeah, so when I saw uh, Cook's paper and saw this uh, reduction of of all of each of the problems in NP by a uniform method to to the satisfiability problem of propositional logic. That meant that the satisfiability problem was a universal combinatorial problem, and it occurred to me through experience I had had in trying to solve other combinatorial problems that there were many other problems which seemed to have that universal structure. And so I began looking for reductions from the satisfiability to other problems. Um, uh, One of the other problems would be uh, the so-called integer programming problem of... um, Solving a determining whether there's a solution to a um, a set of linear inequalities involving integer variables. So it's like linear programming, but there's a constraint that the variables must m- remain integers. Integers, in fact, must be either zero or one. Could take could only take on those values, and that makes the problem much harder. Yes, that makes the problem much harder, and um, it was not difficult to show that the satisfiability problem can be restated as an integer programming problem. So can you pause on that? Was that one of the first mappings that you tried to do? And how Uh, hard is that mapping? You said it wasn't hard to show, but you know, that's a a big leap. (laughs) It is a big leap, yeah. Well, let me me give you another example. Um, Another problem uh, in NP is whether a, a graph contains a clique of a given size. Um, And now um, the question is, can we reduce the propositional logic problem to the problem of whether there's a clique of a certain size? Well, if you look at the propositional logic problem, it can be expressed as a number of clauses each of which is a um, of the form A or B or C, where A is either one of the variables in the problem or the negation of one of the variables. And the uh, an instance of the propositional logic problem can be rewritten using operations of Boolean logic can be re- 
be written as the conjunction of a set of clauses, the and of a set of ors, where each clause is a, a disjunction, an or of variables or negated variables. So the, the question of uh, in the satisfiability problem is whether those clauses can be simultaneously satisfied. Now, to satisfy all those clauses, you have to find one of the terms in each clause, which is going to be given the, which is going to be true in your truth assignment. But you can't make the same variable both true and false. So, if you have a, the variable a in one clause, and you want to satisfy that clause by making a true, you can't also make the complement of A true in some other clause. And so the goal is to make every single clause true if it's possible to satisfy this. And the way you make it true is at least one term in the clause must be uh, must true. be true. Got it. So so now we uh, to convert this problem to something called the independent set problem where you're just sort of asking for uh, a set of vertices in a graph such that no two of them are adjacent, sort of the opposite of the clique problem. Um, so we've seen that we can now express that as um, finding a set of terms, one in each clause, without picking both the variable and the negation of that variable. Because you, if the variable is assigned the truth value, the negated variable has to have the opposite truth value. Right. And so we can construct a graph where the vertices are the terms in all of the clauses, and you have uh, an edge between two um, terms, if um, if uh, an edge between two occurrences of terms, uh, either if they're both in the same clause, because you're only picking one element from each clause, and also an edge between them if they represent opposite values of the same variable because you can't make a variable both true and false. And so you get a graph where you have all of these occurrences of variables. You have edges, which, which mean that you're not allowed to choose um, both ends of the edge, either because they're in the same clause or they're negations of one another. Right, and uh, that's a, first of all, sort of to zoom out, that's a really powerful idea that you can take a graph and connected to a logic equation right. somehow and do, do that mapping for all possible formulations of a particular problem on a graph. Yeah. I mean, that that still is hard for me to believe <laughs> yeah. that that's possible. That, that there, like, what do you make of that? That um, there's such a union of, there's such a friendship among all these problems across that somehow are akin to combinatorial uh, algorithms that they're all somehow related. Yeah, I, I I know it can be proven. 
Yeah. But what do you make of it that that that's true? Well, that they just have the same expressive power. You can take any one of them and translate it into the terms of the other. You know, the, but the fact really, that they have the same expressive power also somehow means that they can be translatable. Right. And what I did in the 1971 paper was to take uh, 21 fundamental problems, the commonly occurring problems of packing, covering, matching, and so forth, or, or lying in the class NP, and show that the satisfiability problem can be re-expressed as any of those, that any of those have the same expressive, uh, expressive power. So, yeah, and that was like throwing down the gauntlet of saying <laughs> there's probably many more problems like this. Right. But that's just saying that, look, that they're all the same. They're all the same, uh, but not exactly. They're, you know, they're all the same in terms of whether they are um, rich enough to express any of the others. Um, but that doesn't mean that they have the same computational complexity. But what we can say is that either all of these problems or none of them are solvable in polynomial time. Yeah, so where does NP completeness and NP hard as oh, classes fit? Oh, that's just a small technicality. So when we're talking about decision problems, that means that the answer is just yes or no. There, there is a clique of size 15 or there's not a clique of size 15. On the other hand, an optimization problem would be asking, um, find the largest clique. The answer would not be yes or no, it would be 15. So um, so when you're asking for the, when you're putting a valuation on the different solutions and you're asking for the one with the highest valuation, that's an optimization problem. And there's a very close affinity between the two kinds of problems. But uh, the counterpart of being the hardest decision problem, the hardest yes-no problem, the counterpart of that uh, is, is to minimize or maximize an objective function. And so a problem that's hardest in the class when viewed in terms of optimization, those are called NP-hard rather than NP-complete. And NP-complete is for decision problems. And NP-complete is for decision problems. So if somebody shows that P equals NP, what do you think that proof will look like? If you were to put on your sort of, if it's possible to show that as a proof or to demonstrate an algorithm? All I can say is that it will involve concepts that we do not now have and approaches that we don't have. Do you think uh, those concepts are out there in terms of inside complexity theory, inside of computational analysis of algorithms? Do you think there's concepts that are totally outside of the box that we haven't considered yet? I think that if there is a proof that P is equal to NP or that P is unequal to NP, uh, It'll depend on concepts that are now outside the box. Now, if that's shown, either way, P equals NP or P not, well, actually P equals NP, what impact? You kind of mentioned it a little bit, but can you can you linger on it? What kind of impact would it have 
on theoretical computer science and perhaps software-based well, systems in general? Well, I think it would have enormous impact on the on the world any, in either way case. If P is unequal to NP, which is what we expect, then we know that we're in, that for the great majority of the combinatorial problems that come up, since they're known to be NP-complete, uh, we're not going to be able to solve them by efficient algorithms. However, there's a little bit of hope in that it may be that we can solve most instances. All we know is that if a problem is not in P, then it can't be solved efficiently on all instances. Um, but but basically, it will um, it will if we find that P is unequal to NP, it will mean that we can't ex expect always to get the optimal solutions to these problems, and we have to depend on heuristics that perhaps work most of the time or give us good approximate solutions, but not. Uh, so, so we would turn our eye towards the heuristics we would, with a little bit more. Uh, acceptance and comfort on our hearts. Exactly. Okay, so let me ask a romanticized question. <laughs> what to you is one of the most or the most beautiful combinatorial algorithm in your own life or just in general in the field that you've ever come across or have developed yourself? Oh, I like the stable matching problem or the stable marriage problem uh, very much. What's the stable matching problem? Yeah. Imagine that you want to marry off N boys with uh, N girls. And each boy has an ordered list of his preferences among the girls, his first choice, his second choice, through her nth choice. And... Um, each girl also has a, an ordering of the boys, first choice, second choice, and so on. And we'll say, and we, we'll say that a matching, a one-to-one -one matching of the boys with the girls is stable if there are no two couples in the matching such that the boy in the first couple prefers the girl in the second couple to her mate, and she prefers the boy to her current mate. In other words, if there is the, the matching is stable if there is no pair who want to run away with each other, leaving their partners behind. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It, actually, this is relevant to uh, matching. Uh, uh, residents with hospitals and some other real life problems, although uh, not quite in the form that I described. So it turns out that there is that a stable for any set of preferences, a stable matching exists, and um, moreover, it can be computed by a simple algorithm in which um, each boy starts making proposals to girls. And if a girl receives a proposal, she accepts it tentatively, but she can drop it if she can end it. She can drop it later if she gets a better proposal from her point of view. 
And the boys start going down their lists, proposing to their first, second, third choices, until you know, stopping when a, a proposal is accepted. Uh, but the girls, meanwhile, are watching the proposals that are coming into them, and the girl will drop her current partner um, if she gets a better proposal. And the, the boys never go back through the list. They, they never go back. Yeah, so once they've been denied. <laughs> <laughs> they don't try again. They don't, they don't, they don't try again because it, the girls are always improving their status as they get more, as they receive right. better and better proposals. The boys are going down their list, starting with their top preferences. And um, one can prove that uh, uh, that the process will come to an end where everybody will get matched with somebody and you'll, you won't have any pair that want to abscond from each other. Do you find the proof or the algorithm itself beautiful, or is it the fact that with the, the simplicity of just the two marching, I mean, the, the simplicity of the underlying rule of the algorithm, is that the beautiful part? Both, I, I would say. Um, and you also have the observation that you might ask, uh, who is better off, the boys who are doing the proposing or the girls who are reacting to proposals? And it turns out that it's, it's the boys who are doing the, doing the best. That is, each boy is doing at least as well as uh, he could do in any other staple matching. So there's a sort of lesson for the boys that you should go out and be proactive and make those proposals. Go for broke. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if the this is directly mappable philosophically to our society, but uh, certainly seems like a compelling notion. And uh, like you said, there's probably a lot of actual real world problems that this could be mapped to. Yeah. Well, you get you you get uh, complications. For example, what happens when a husband and wife want to be assigned to the same hospital? So you uh, you you have to take those constraints into account. Uh, and then the problem becomes NPR. Or, uh, uh, wh why is it a problem for the husband and wife to be assigned to the same hospital? No, it's desirable. So desirable. They, or at least go to the same city. So you can't, if you're, I see. If you're assigning residents to hospitals. And then you have some preferences uh, the, for the, the husband and the wife for, for the hospitals. The residents have their own preferences References, residents, both male and female, have their own preferences. Um, the hospitals have their preferences. But if, if uh, resident A, the boy, is going to Philadelphia, then you'd like his wife be also to be assigned to a hospital in Philadelphia. So, Which step makes it a NP-hard problem? That you mentioned? The fact that you have this additional constraint, that it's not just the preferences of individuals, but the fact that the two partners to a marriage have to go to, have to be assigned to the same place. I'm being a little dense. Uh, the uh, sort of the, the perfect matching, no, not the perfect, stable matching is what yeah. you refer to. 
That's when two partners are trying to... Okay, what's confusing you is that in the first interpretation of the problem, I had boys matching with girls. Yes. In the second interpretation, you have humans matching with institutions. institutions. I, I, and there's a coupling between within the, gotcha, within the humans. Yeah. Uh, any added little constraint will make it an empty hard problem. Well, yeah. Okay. By the way, the algorithm you mentioned wasn't, was one of yours or no? No, no, that was due to Gail and Shapley. And uh, my friend David Gail passed away before he could get part of the Nobel Prize, but. Uh, his partner Shapley uh, shared in a Nobel Prize with somebody else for economics, for 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 economics, uh, for ideas stemming from this stable matching idea. So you've also have developed yourself some elegant, beautiful algorithms. Again, picking your children. So the the the, the Robin Carp algorithm for string searching, pattern matching. Edmund Karp algorithm for max flows we mentioned, Hopcroft Karp algorithm for finding maximum cardinality matchings in bipartite graphs. Is there ones that stand out to you as ones you're most proud of or just um, whether it's beauty, elegance, or just being the right discovery development in your life that you're especially proud of? I like the Rabin Karp algorithm because it illustrates the power of uh, randomization. So um, the the problem there is to um, is to uh, decide whether uh, a given long string of symbols from some alphabet contains a given word whether a particular word occurs within some very much longer word. And so the, the idea of the um, algorithm is to associate with the word that we're looking for a fingerprint, mm -hmm. some, some number or some combinatorial object that describes that word, and then to look for an occurrence of that same fingerprint as you slide along the longer word. And what we do is we asso associate with each word a number. So we first of all, we think of the letters that are kind of occur in a word as the digits of, let's say, decimal or whatever base here whatever number of different symbols there are in the That's alphabet. the base of the, of the numbers, yeah. Right. So every word can then be thought of as a number with the letters being the digits of that number. Mm -hmm. And then we pick a random prime number in a certain range, and we take that word viewed as a number and take the remainder on dividing the dividing that number by the prime. So coming up with a nice hash function. It's a it's a kind of hash function. Yeah. Um, it gives you a little little shortcut for for that particular word. Yeah. That, so that's the that's the. Uh, it's very different than the in, uh, in other algorithms of its kind that we're trying to do search uh, um, 
string matching. Yeah, right. which are usually are combinatorial and don't involve the, the idea of taking a random fingerprint. Yes. And doing the fingerprinting has two advantages. One is that as we slide along the long word, digit by digit, we can we, we keep a window of, of a certain size, the size of the word we're looking for, and we, we compute the fingerprint of every say, stretch of that length. And it turns out that it, just a couple of arithmetic op operations will take you from the fingerprint of one part to what you get when you slide over by one position. So the computation of all the fingerprints is um, simple. And, se and secondly, it's unlikely if the prime is chosen randomly from a certain range that you will get two of the segments in question having the same fingerprint. Right. And so there's a small probability of error, which can be checked after the fact, and also the ease of doing the computation because you're working with these fingerprints, which are remainders modulo some big prime. So that's the magical thing about randomized algorithms is that if you add a little bit of uh, randomness, it somehow allows you to take a pretty naive approach, a simple looking approach, and allow it to run extremely well. Uh, so can you maybe take a step back and say, like, what is a randomized algorithm, this category of algorithms? Well, it's um, just the ability to draw a random number from such... Um, from some range or to uh, to associate a random number with some object or to draw at random from some set. So uh, another example is um, very simple. If we're conducting a presidential election and uh, we would like to pick the winner, um, in principle, we could draw a random sample of all of the voters in the country. And if it was of, si of substantial size, say a few thousand, then the most popular candidate in that group would be very likely to be the correct choice that would come out of counting all the millions of votes. Uh, now, of course, we can't do this because, first of all, everybody has to feel that his or her vote counted. And secondly, we can't really do a purely random sample from that population. And I guess thirdly, there could be a tie, in which case um, we wouldn't have a significant difference between two candidates. But those things <laughs> aside, if you didn't have all that messiness of human beings, you could prove that that kind of random picking would you come just up that with random it. picking would would be uh, would solve the problem with a very with a very low probability of error. Another example is um, testing whether a number is prime. So if I want to test whether uh, 17 is prime, I could pick uh, any number between 1 and 17 and raise it to the 16th power modulo 17, and, it should, and you should get back the original number. That's a famous uh, formula due to Fermat about, uh, it's called Fermat's Little Theorem, that um, if you take any A, any number A in the range uh, 0 through N minus 1, 
and raise it to the n minus one power modulo n, you'll get back the number a. <laughs> if the number is if a is prime. Yeah. So if you don't get back the number a, that's a proof that a number is not prime. Wow. Oh. <laughs> and you can show that um, suitably define the 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 probability that you will get uh, a value un unequal, to, you will get a violation of Fermat's result is very high, and so this gives you a way of uh, rapidly proving that a number is not prime. It's a little more complicated than that because uh, there are certain values of n where something a little more elaborate has to be done, but that's the basic idea. Use, uh, taking an identity that holds for primes, and therefore, if it ever fails on any instance for a non-prime, you, uh, uh, you know that the number is not prime. It's a quick choice, a fast choice, fast proof that a number is not prime. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more? What's your intuition why randomness works so well and results in such simple algorithms? Well, uh, the example of conducting an election where you could take, in, in theory, you could take a sample and depend on the validity of the sample to really represent the whole is a, just a basic fact of statistics, which gives a lot of opportunities. Um, and uh, I actually exploited that sort of random random sampling idea in uh, designing an algorithm for uh, counting the number of solutions to, that satisfy a particular uh, formula in propositional uh, propositional logic. A particular, so some 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 uh, version of the satisfiability problem, or a, ver a version of the satisfiability problem. Um, is there some interesting insight that you want to elaborate on, like what uh, what some aspect of that algorithm that might be useful to describe? So you you have a uh, a uh, collection of uh, formulas, and you want to count the number of solutions that satisfy. Uh, at least one of the formulas. And you can count the number of solutions that satisfy any particular one of the formulas, but you have to account for the fact that that solution might be counted many times if it solves more than one of the formulas. Mm -hmm. And so what, what you do is you... Uh, sample from the formulas according to the number of solutions that satisfy each individual one. In that way, you draw a random solution, but then you correct by looking at the number of formulas that satisfy that random solution and uh, and don't double count. So if, if you, you can think of it this way. So you have a... Uh, a matrix of zeros and ones, and you want to know how many columns of that matrix contain at least one one. And you can count in each row how many ones there are. So what you can do is draw from the rows according to 
the number of ones. If a row has more ones, it gets drawn more frequently. But then if you draw from that row, you have to go up the column and looking at where that same one is repeated in different rows and only counted as a success or a hit if it's the earliest row that contains the one. Right. And uh, that gives you a robust statistical estimate of the total number of columns that contain at least one of the ones. So that that uh, is an example of the same principle that was used in studying random sampling. Another viewpoint is that if you have a phenomenon that occurs almost all the time, then if you sample one of the occasions where it occurs, you're most likely to, and you're looking for an occurrence, a random occurrence is likely to work. So that comes up in solving identities, solving algebraic identities. You, you get um, two formulas that may look very different. You want to know if they're really identical. What you can what you can do is just pick a random value and evaluate the formulas at those two at that value and see if they seeing if they agree. And you depend on the fact that if the formulas are distinct, then they're going to disagree a lot. And so therefore a random choice will exhibit the disagreement. If there are many ways for the two to disagree, uh, and you only need to find one disagreement, then random choice is likely to yield it. And in general, so we've just talked about randomized algorithms, but we can look at the probabilistic analysis of algorithms. And that gives us an opportunity to step back. And as you said, everything we've been talking about is worst case analysis. Right. Could you maybe comment on the usefulness and the power of worst case analysis versus best case analysis, average case, probabilistic. How do we think about the future of theoretical computer science, computer science, in the kind of analysis we do of algorithms? Does worst case analysis still have a place, an important place, or do we want to try to move forward towards kind of average case analysis? Yeah. And what, what are the challenges there? So if worst-case analysis shows that a, uh, an algorithm is always good, that, that's fine. Uh, if worst-case analysis uh, is used to show that the problem, that the solution is not always good, then you have to step back and do something else to, to ask, how often will you get a good solution? That's, just to pause on that for a second, that that's so uh, beautifully put because I think we tend to judge algorithms. We throw them in the trash the moment their their worst case is shown to be bad. Right, and 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 that's unfortunate. I think we um, uh, a good example is um, going back to the satisfiability problem. Um, there are very powerful programs called SAT solvers which in practice fairly reliably solve instances with many millions of variables that arise in uh, digital design or in proving programs correct and other applications. Um, and so uh, in, in many application areas, even though satisfiability, as we've already discussed, is NP complete, 
um, the SAT solvers will work so well that the people in that discipline tend to think of satisfiability as an easy problem. Mm. So, in other words, just for some reason that we don't entirely understand, the instances that people formulate in designing digital circuits or other applications are such that um, satisfiability is not hard to check. And even searching for a satisfying solution can be done efficiently in practice. And there are many examples. For example, uh, we talked about the traveling salesman problem. So just to refresh our memories, uh, the problem is you've got a set of cities, you have pairwise distances between cities, um, and you want to find a tour through all the cities that minimizes the total the total cost of all the edges traversed, all the, all the trips between cities. The problem is NP-hard, but people using integer programming codes to, together with some other mathematical tricks uh, can solve geometric instances of the problem where the cities are, let's say, points in the plane, uh, and get optimal solutions to problems with tens of thousands of cities. Actually, it'll take a few computer months to solve a problem of that size, but for problems of size a 1,000 or two, it'll rapidly get optimal solutions, provably optimal solutions, uh, even though, again, we know that it's unlikely to that the traveling salesman problem can be solved in polynomial time. Are there methodologies, like rigorous systematic methodologies for, you said in practice. In yeah. practice, this algorithm is pretty good. Are there systematic ways of saying, in practice, this one is pretty good? So in other words, average case analysis. Or you've also mentioned that average case kind of requires you to understand what the typical cases, typical instances, and yeah. that might be really difficult. That's very difficult. So after I did my original work uh, on uh, getting, uh, showing all these problems to be NP-complete, I looked around for a way to get some, shed some positive light on combinatorial algorithms. And what I tried to do was to study um, uh, problems, uh, behavior on the average or with high probability. But I had to make some assumptions about what, what what's the probability space, what's the sample space, what, are the, what do we mean by typical problems. And it's very hard to say. So I took the easy way out and made some very simplistic assumptions. So I assumed, for example, that if we were generating a graph with a certain number of vertices and edges, then we would generate the graph by simply choosing one edge at a time at, ran at random until we got the right number of edges. That's, that's a particular model of random graphs that has been studied mathematically a lot. And within that model, I, I could prove all kinds of wonderful things, I and others who also worked on this. Uh, so we could show that we know exactly how many edges there have to be in order for um, there be a, a so-called Hamiltonian circuit. That's a, a cycle that visits each vertex exactly once. 
Um, we know that if the uh, number of edges is a little bit more than n log n, where n is the number of vertices, then where such a cycle is very likely to exist, and we can give a heuristic that'll find it with high probability. And we got a, 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 the community um, in which I was working got a lot of results along these lines. Um, but the field tended to be rather lukewarm about accepting these results as meaningful because we were making such a simplistic assumption about the kinds of graphs that we would be dealing with. So we could show all kinds of wonderful things. It was a great playground. I enjoyed doing it. But after a while, I concluded that um, um, that um, it didn't have a lot of bite in terms of the practical application. Oh, the okay. So there's too much into the world of toy problems. Yeah. That can okay, but all right. So, but is is there a way to find nice, representative, real world, impactful instances of a problem on which to demonstrate? that an algorithm is good. So this is kind of like the machine learning world, that's kind of what they at its best tries to do is find a data set mm -hmm. from like the real world yeah. and show the performance, all the all the conferences are all focused on beating the performance of on that real world data set. Is yeah. there an equivalent in the complexity analysis? Not really. Um, Don Knuth, uh, started to collect examples of graphs coming from various places. So he would have a whole zoo of different graphs that he could choose from, and he could, could study the performance of algorithms on different types of graphs. And um, But there it's really important and, and compelling to be able to define a class of graphs. So, so <laughs> that, that the, the actual act of defining a class of graphs that you're interested in, it seems to be... Um, a non-trivial step if we're talking about instances that we should care about in the real world. Yeah, it's uh, there's nothing available there that would be analogous to the training set for supervised learning. You know, where you sort of assume that uh, the, the world has given you a bunch of uh, examples uh, to work with. Uh, we we don't really have that for problems of for combinatorial problems on graphs and networks. You know, there's been a, a huge growth, a big growth of data sets yeah. available. Do you think some aspect of theoretical computer science, I might be contradicting my own question while saying it, but <laughs> will there be some aspect, an empirical aspect of theoretical computer science, which will allow the fact that these data sets are huge, we'll start using them for analysis? Sort of, you know, if you want to say something about a graph algorithm, you might take a network, an, a social network like Facebook, yeah. and looking at subgraphs of that, and prove something about the Facebook graph, and be respected, and at the same time be respected in the theoretical computer science community. That hasn't been achieved yet, I'm afraid. Is that is that uh, is that p equals n p? Is that impossible? Is is it impossible to publish a successful paper in the theoretical computer science community that shows some uh, some performance on a real world data set? Or is that really just those are two different worlds? Well, they haven't really come together. I would say that 
there there is a um, field of experimental algorithmics where people sometimes they're given uh, some family of examples. Um, sometimes they just generate them at random, and they report on performance. Um, but there's no convincing evidence that the sample is representative of anything at all. So let me ask, in terms of breakthroughs and open problems, what are the most compelling open problems to you and what possible breakthroughs do you see in the near term in terms of theoretical computer science? Well, there are all kinds of relationships among complexity classes that can be studied. Um, just to mention one thing, I wrote a paper with uh, Richard Lipton in 1979 where we asked the following question. Um, if you take a problem, a combinatorial problem in NP, let's say, and you um, choose a, and you pick a, 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 the the size of the problem. Uh, say uh, it's a traveling salesman problem, but of size fifty-two, and you ask, could you get an efficient, a small Boolean circuit tailored for that size, 52, where you could feed the edges of the graph in, in as Boolean inputs and get as an output the question of whether or not there's a tour of a certain length. And that would, in other words, briefly what you would say in that case is that the problem has small circuits, polynomial-sized circuits. Now, we know that if P is equal to NP, then in fact, these problems will have small circuits. But what about the converse? Could a problem have small circuits, meaning that it's that an algorithm tailored to any particular size could work well, and yet not be a polynomial time algorithm? That is, you couldn't write it as a single uniform algorithm good for all sizes. Just to clarify, small circuits for a problem of particular size or even further constraint, small circuit for a particular... For, uh, no, for all the inputs of that size. All of that size. Is that a trivial problem for a particular instance of... So coming up, an automated way of coming up with a circuit, I guess that's... Just that, would be, that, would be, that would be hard, yeah. yeah. But, you know, but there's the existential question. Everybody talks nowadays about every existential questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, existential challenges. Yeah. Um, um, you could ask the, the question, um, does the Hamiltonian circuit problem have a, a small circuit for, for every size, for each size, a, a different small circuit? In other words, could you tailor solutions depending on the size and, and get polynomial size. Even if P is not equal to NP. Right. And... That would what, be fascinating if that's true. Yeah. What we proved is that if that were possible, then something strange would happen in complexity theory. <laughs> Some high-level high uh, class, which I could briefly describe... Um, something strange would happen. 
So um, I'll take a stab at describing what I mean sure. by this class. <laughs> Let's go there. So we have to define this hierarchy in which the first level of the hierarchy is P and the second level is NP. And what is NP? NP involves statements of the form, there exists a something such that something holds. Um, so, uh, for example, um, um, there exists a coloring such that a graph can be colored with only that number of colors. Or there exists a Hamiltonian circuit. That's a statement about this graph. Yeah. So, so the... Um, NP um, NP deals with statements of that kind, that there exists a solution. Now, you could imagine uh, a more complicated uh, expression, which, which says, um, uh, for all X, there exists a Y such that some... Uh, proposition holds involving both X and Y. So that would say, for example, in game theory, for all um, strategies for the first player, there exists a strategy for the second player such that the first player wins. That would be, that would be at the second level of the hierarchy. The third level would be there exists an A such that for all B there exists a C that something holds. And you can imagine going higher and higher in the hierarchy. And you'd expect that the class, the complexity class, the classes that correspond to those different cases, would get bigger and bigger. Or they, they what do you they, mean by bigger and sorry, bigger? sorry, they, they'd get harder and harder to harder solve. Harder and harder, right? Harder and harder, harder and harder to solve. And what Lifton and I showed was that if um, NP had small circuits then this hierarchy would collapse down to the second level. Hmm. In other words, you wouldn't get any more mileage by complicating your expressions with three quantifiers or four quantifiers or any number. I'm not sure what to make of that exactly. Well, I think it would be evidence that NP doesn't have small circuits because something, <laughs> something so bizarre would happen. But again, it's only evidence, not proof. Well, yeah, it's, it's not. That's not even evidence because you're saying P is not equal to NP because something bizarre has to happen. I mean, there. That's a uh, that's proof by the lack of bizarreness in in our science. But it seems like, um, it seems like just the very notion of P equals NP would be bizarre. So any way you arrive at. There's no way <laughs> you have to fight the dragon at some point. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> for whatever it's worth, that's yeah. what we proved. Awesome. So, so that's a potential space of open, interesting problems. Yeah. Let me uh, ask you about the this other world that you that of machine learning of deep learning. Uh, what's your thoughts on the history and the current progress of machine learning field that's often progressed sort of separately as, as a space of ideas and space of people than the theoretical computer science or just even computer science world. Yeah, it's really um, very different from the theoretical computer science world because uh, um, the results about it, algorithmic performance tend to be empirical. It's more akin to 
the world of SAT solvers, where we observe that uh, for formulas in, arising in practice, the solver does well. So it, it, it's of that type. It's we're we're moving into the empirical evaluation of algorithms. Now it's clear that there have been huge successes in um, image processing, uh, robotics, uh, natural language processing. A little less so, but across the spectrum of of uh, game playing is another one. There have been great successes. Um, and one of those effects is that it's not too hard to become a millionaire if you can get a reputation in machine learning, and there'll be all kinds of companies that will be willing to offer you the moon because they right. they think that if they have AI at their disposal, then they can solve all kinds of problems. Um, but there are limitations. Um, um, one is that the solutions that you get by uh, fr from to uh, um, supervised learning problems uh, through uh, convolutional neural networks uh, seem to perform re amazingly well, even for in inputs that are outside the training set. Um, but we don't have any theoretical understanding of why that's true. Secondly, the solutions, the, the networks that you get uh, are very hard to understand, and so very little insight comes out. So, yeah, yeah, they may seem to work on your training set, and you may be able to discover whether your photos occur in a different sample of inputs or not. Um, but we don't really know what's going on. We don't know the the features that distinguish the photographs or the objects are are um, not easy to characterize. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned coming up with a small circuit yeah. to solve a particular size problem. Yeah. It seems that neural networks are kind of small circuits. In a way. Yeah, uh, but they're not programs. Sort of like the the things you've designed are algorithms, programs, right? Algorithms. Neural networks aren't able to develop algorithms to solve a problem. As it, well, they it's are more of a function. They are, they are algorithms. It's just that they're. Uh, but sort of, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, it's a. It could be a semantic question, but there's not a algorithmic style manipulation of the input. Perhaps yeah. you could argue there is. Yeah, well. It, it feels a lot more like a function of the input. It's a Yeah, it's a function, it's a computable function. It's, it's, um, you, and that's once you have the network, you can simulate it on a given input and figure out the output. But what you, you know, if you're, if you're trying to recognize um, images, <clears throat> then you don't know what features of the image are really being uh, uh, determinant of, of what the circuit is doing. The circuit is sort of a very intricate, and uh, it's not clear that the the you know the the simple characteristics that you're looking for the the edges of the objects or whatever they may be 
they're not emerging from the structure of the circuit. Well, it's not clear to us humans, but it's clear to the circuit. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. I mean, uh, it's not clear to sort of the, um, the elephant how the human brain works, but it's clear to us humans, we can explain to each other our reasoning, and that's why the cognitive science and psychology field exists. Maybe, maybe the whole thing of being explainable to humans is a little bit overrated. Oh, maybe, yeah. Uh, I guess I, you know, you could say the same thing about our brain that when we perform acts of cognition, we have no idea how we do it, really. Sure. Well, we do, though. I mean, we uh, for at least for the visual system, the auditory system, and so on, we do get some understanding of the principles that they operate under. But uh, for many deeper cognitive tasks, we don't have that. That's right. Let me ask. Yeah. You've also been doing work on bioinformatics. Does it amaze you that the fundamental building blocks, so if we take a step back and look at us humans, the building blocks used by evolution to build us intelligent human beings is all contained there in our DNA? It's amazing, and, and what's really amazing is that we have are beginning to learn how to edit DNA, which 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 is very 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 fascinating. This uh, this ability to uh, uh, take a sequence, find it in the genome, and do something to it. I mean, that's really taking our biological systems towards the world of algorithm of algorithms. Yeah, but it raises a lot of questions. Um. You have to distinguish between doing it on an individual or doing it on somebody's germline, which means that all of their descendants will be affected. So that's like an ethical... Yeah, so it raises very severe ethical questions. And and even doing it on individuals um, is... uh, it's, there's a lot of hubris involved that you can assume that knocking out a particular gene is going to be beneficial because you don't know what the side effects are going to be. So we have this um, wonderful uh, new world of gene editing, uh, which is you know very very impressive and. It, it, it could be used in uh, agriculture. It could be used in uh, medicine in various ways. Um, but very serious ethical problems arise. What are to you the most interesting places where algorithms, sort of the ethical side is an exceptionally challenging thing that I think we're going to have to tackle with all of uh, genetic engineering. But on the algorithmic side, there's a lot of benefit that's possible. Yeah. So is there uh, areas where you see exciting possibilities for algorithms to help model, optimize, study biological systems? Yeah, I mean, we we can certainly analyze genomic data to figure out um, um, which genes are operative in the cell and under what conditions and which proteins affect one another. Uh, which, prote- which proteins 
physically interact. Um, we can uh, sequence proteins and modify them. Um, is there some aspect of that that's a computer science problem, or is that still fundamentally a biology problem? Well, it's a big data, it's a statistical big data problem for sure. So, you know, the biological data sets are increasing. Our ability to uh, study our ancestry, by, to study the um, tendencies towards disease, to uh, personalize treatment according to what's in our genomes and what tendencies for disease we have. Uh, to be able to predict what troubles might come upon us in the future and anticipate them, to to understand whether you, um, for a woman, uh, whether her proclivity for um, breast cancer is so strong enough that she would want to take action to avoid it. You dedicate your 1985 Touring Award lecture to the memory of your father. Mm -hmm. What's your fondest memory of your dad? Seeing him standing in front of a class at the blackboard, drawing perfect circles by hand and showing uh, his, his uh, ability to attract the interest of the motley collection of eighth grade students that he was teaching. When when did you get a chance to see him draw the perfect circles? I, on rare occasions, he, I, I would get a chance to sneak into his classroom and observe, uh, observe it. And, and I think he was at his best in the classroom. I think he really came to life and uh, had fun um, not only teaching but uh, but um, you know, engaging in chit chat with the students and you know uh, ingratiating himself with the students. And uh, what I inherited from that is um, a great desire to be a teacher. I retired recently, and a lot of my former students came students who's, with whom I had done research or who had read my papers or who had been in my classes. And when they talked about, about me, um, they talked not about my 1979 paper or my 1992 paper, but about what, they, what came away in my classes. And not just the details, but just the approach and the the um, manner of teaching. And so I sort of take pride in the at least in my early years as a faculty member at Berkeley, I was exemplary in preparing my lectures, and I always came in prepared to the teeth and able, therefore, to deviate according to what happened in the class and to really. Um, really provide a model for the students. So is there advice you could give out for others on how to be a good teacher? So preparation is one thing you've mentioned, being exceptionally well-prepared, but are there other things, pieces of advice that you can impart 
Well, the top three would be preparation, preparation, and preparation. <laughs> Why is preparation so important, I guess? Uh, is uh... It's because it gives you the ease to deal with any situation that comes up in the, in the classroom. And, uh, you know, if you're... If you discover that you're not getting through one way, you can do it another way. If the students have questions, you can handle the questions. So ultimately, you're also feeling the 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 crowd, the students of what they're struggling with, what they're picking up, just looking at them through the questions, but even just through their eyes. Yeah, and because that's of the right. preparation, you you can uh, you can dance. You can dance. You can you can say it another way or give another angle. Are there, in particular, ideas and algorithms of computer science that you find were big aha moments for students, where they, for some reason, once they got it, it clicked for them and they fell in love with computer science? Or is it individual? Is it different for everybody? It's different for everybody. You have to work differently with students. Some, some of them just don't don't need much influence you you know they, they they're just running with what they're doing and they just need an ear now and then others need a little prodding others need to be persuaded to collaborate among themselves rather than working alone um, they have their personal ups and downs so you know you have to have, have to deal with each student as a human being and uh, bring out the best humans are complicated yeah. Perhaps a silly question. If you could relive a moment in your life outside of family because it made you truly happy, or perhaps because it changed the direction of your life in a profound way, what moment would you pick? I was kind of a lazy student <laughs> as an undergraduate. And um, even in my first year in graduate school, and I think it was when I started doing research I had a couple of summer jobs where I was able to contribute, and um, I had an idea. And then there was one particular course on mathematical methods and operations research where I just gobbled up the material and I scored 20 points higher than anybody else in the class and came to the attention of the faculty. And it made me realize that I had some ability, uh, some ability that it was going somewhere. <laughs> uh, you realize you're pretty good at this thing. I don't think there's a better way to end it, Richard. It was a huge honor. Thank you for decades of incredible work. Well, thank you for talking to Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, you're a superb interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop it. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Richard Karp. And thank you to our sponsors, 8sleep and Cash App. Please consider supporting this podcast by going to 8sleep.com slash Lex to check out their awesome mattress and downloading Cash App and using code Lex Podcast. Click the links, buy the stuff, even just visiting the site, but also considering the purchase helps them know that uh, this podcast is worth supporting in the future. It really is the best way to support this journey I'm on. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, Support it on Patreon. Or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman if you can figure out how to spell that. And now let me leave you with some words from Isaac Asimov. I do not fear computers. I fear lack of them. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.